Let us go to our God in prayer. Holy God, as the deer pants for water, so our souls long for you. Beneath everything else, there is our souls hungered and starved for a living word, a true word, a nourishing word. And we pray that you would open our ears and our hearts to receive just such a word this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our two readings come from the lectionary this Sunday. The first reading is from Genesis chapter 45, verses 3 through 11, and verse 15 has to do with Joseph and his brothers. You recall they, they sold, their brother, the 11 brothers sold Joseph into slavery, into Egypt. But many years later, Joseph, he rises to power in Egypt. And, and many years later, there's a great famine in the land. And these 11 brothers, they make their way to Egypt and into the high courts because they need to find food. They need to figure out a way to deal with this great famine. And who is before them? In the great high courts, but their brother Joseph, who they sold, they sold into slavery, but uh, they do not recognize him, not at first. And we get to this scene. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been a famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you, your children and your grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. And he kissed all of his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And then our New Testament reading comes from Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 38. But I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you, and if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. 
But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put back into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was in the eighth grade, there were a small group of guys who got into the habit of chasing me around the playground during recess, and they thought it hilarious to stuff bags, empty bags of Doritos into my hood with that little bit of leftover chip down there, and they put it in the hood, and then they'd flip the hood over my head, and then they'd run away. I would have at the time been loath to have called them enemies. I mean, we were friends. We played on the same basketball team. We sometimes had lunch together. They were good kids, good grades, nice parents. The word Jesus uses for enemy in Luke 6 means one who hates, or more broadly, one who causes, one who is a distresser. So, an enemy is a person or or people who, who, who make you boil. With anger, one you cannot stand, one who curses against you, uh, one who slanders you, but also just more broadly, one who is a distresser. One way or another, they bring out within you feelings of ill will toward them because you've readily experienced their ill will, hatred, cruelty, distressing of you. Now, in our day, we may name our enemies as some on the other side of the political aisle or or formal enemies of the United States of America, but, but also quite often in Scripture, enemy refers to people on the very same playground. All the way back to the beginning, Cain and Abel, were they not brothers? Joseph and the 11 others who sold them in, him into slavery, were they not brothers or think again to the new testament romans 12 it's quoting proverbs at one point if your enemy's hungry feed him if your enemy's thirsty give him a drink which implies that one is near enough to the enemy that the sharing of food and drink is a realistic expectation or again first thessalonians 5 Paul's exhorting this little church in Thessalonica. And he says, do not repay evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. The assumption being that the enemy, the one who has caused distress or hurt, is in fact in the one another of the church. Or perhaps we just need only remember the Last Supper, a meal of friends. The Bible assumes enemies. The Bible assumes enemies even quite near. Enemies in the same family, the same church. Enemies that bring with them lifelong challenges and are lifelong enemies and enemies that are seasonal and something changes. But regardless, enemies are assumed and if nothing else, sometimes the one we cannot stand, the one we really hate, the one who causes us the most distress is in fact ourselves the worst enemy. We all have enemies. Whether we name that way them that way or not. 
And we have, of course, the way we then react or engage with them. I would have been loath to call the recess boys enemies. That just felt too weighty a word. But the longer I ran away from them, the longer I stayed quiet about my distress, the longer then that I I sort of started to boil underneath this turn-the-other-cheek Christian veneer. Because I was in the youth group, I knew. In fact, I was kind of starting to see that these guys at a level that was not entirely known to myself because one day they did, they ran up behind me and, and just as the first one's arriving with his bag of chips, I clutch my hand into a right fist and I turn around and I swing with everything I have and clock him right in the face. And John Rose was a lanky kid. He was an exceptional cello player. He's a straight-A student. But on that day, John Rose stood before me as my utterly stunned enemy on the receiving end of a punch worthy of months of pent-up distress. And then the bell rang, and we both awkwardly, obediently went to class. In these few months of eighth grade, I had responded to John in two of the classic forms known to humanity throughout time when it comes to enemies. We run away, or we fight. We're sort of a passive doormat, because that's love, right? Or or, or we push back. But I say to you that listen. Jesus speaks into the dichotomy. And what follows reveals he finds these two paths of fight or flight deeply problematic. He doesn't articulate why those two options are problematic in this particular passage. We can probably intuit for ourselves why fight or flight never really lead to a new season of wholeness and life on our own. Instead, Jesus kind of goes with the assumption we may know from experience why these ultimately never really work out as, as responses. And maybe we are willing to listen to another way, a third way that is neither fight nor flight. But I say to you, those ready to listen, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Agape love your enemies. Don't have to like your enemies, but it does refer to this wholehearted, unreserved, unconditional desire for their well-being. Love them, bless them, pray for them. In college, I came up with this way to celebrate Michelle and I's one-year dating anniversary, and bear with me, some of you know this story, but I created this scavenger hunt where she would go to 12 different locations around the college campus representing the 12 months of our dating relationship. At each location, she would be given a gift and a clue as to the next location. As it turned out, each location was a different dorm room of a friend of ours. Six of the friends were friends that she had made because she'd come to know me in my circle. Six of the friends were friends I had come to know and make because I now knew her. And so she'd arrive at these different dorm rooms, these different friends, and receive there a a newly laminated picture collage depicting photos from a specific month of our dating relationship together. She'd also, at each location, receive one, either one rose or one Diet Coke, Diet Coke being her very favorite beverage at that time, in her life. By the end of the scavenger hunt, she had 
six roses, six Diet Cokes, 12 conversations with our groups of friends, and 12 one-page picture collages detailing our 12-month dating journey. Now I was thrilled. She enjoyed it, all the planning, all the details had come together. And and truth be told, it it, it was birthed from, from a deep love within. If you love those who love you, what credit is to you, is that to you? Sinners do that. Way to take all the wind out of the sails, Jesus. Now, Jesus is hardly telling us not to love those who, who, who love us, but he is pressing our imagination. Consider the creative and thoughtful ways you love those who love you. Or just consider the ongoing, regular, routine ways you love those who love you. Consider the way you really do want what's best for those who love you. Now, think about what it means to love your enemies from the same place you love those who love you. What would it mean not to respond with fight or flight, but the same kind of creative love offered unto loved ones? And then Jesus starts in and kind of starts offering examples of creative, thoughtful, imaginative ways enemy love might unfold. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. I think too often we take this as kind of the verse that that Christians, they need to lay down like a doormat and get walked over because that's love. But this is really far more creative, powerful, and even courageous than that. Important context here. Jesus is speaking to a largely Jewish audience, a largely poor audience, a largely uh, heavily taxed audience. People on the low end of a strict social hierarchy. And so inevitably on the receiving end of some strikes to the cheek. In the ancient world, the right hand was, was the right hand of power. It was the hand to be used for hitting. The left hand was considered unclean and unfit for such action. And now a person could either hit you with a right fist, and to hit with a fist was to acknowledge that the person you're hitting is an equal. The other way to hit was a right-handed, backhanded slap into the right side of their cheek. That was a form of insult, degradation, kind of a master-to-servant move that made it clear, I'm higher than you. And so a right-handed, backhanded slap would come across the right cheek of all the kind of people Jesus is talking to. And Jesus says, and now, when that happens, offer him the other. Which would be the left cheek. But you see, if you turn to the aggressor, the left cheek, they can't really do a backhanded right. You can try it with your neighbor. It's really awkward. You, you just you can't get it. You have a choice. You have to punch with the right. Ooh, that disturbs the social hierarchy. That acknowledges something about one's dignity before you or or you have to back off and and sort of relent before this gesture and and now you're recognizing that this this uh, one below you is determining a little bit of how this whole thing unfolds either way the turning of the left cheek is neither a, a, a fighting back with an equal insult and and and, and whatever it nor is it just a cowering in flight it is a in, in uh, fright. It's a third way. It's a creative way. It's a courageous way. It's an imaginative way. It's a sacrificial way. And it's loving. It's loving in the sense that it exposes the wrong of the aggressor 
but in a way that allows the aggressor to discover that or not, even as the aggressor never has to face what they have doled out. It's the kind of thinking, it's that kind of thinking that, 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 that refuses to fight fire with fire and threat with threat, but instead just refuses to ride the public bus system for 381 days in Montgomery, Alabama, 1955 and 56. Neither, neither fight the same way they fight or just flight in cowering fear, but another act entirely, a third way that exposes the injustice, but also does so from a place desirous of reconciliation. Jesus continues, or if anyone takes a coat from you, don't withhold your shirt also. Typically, a person in the ancient world would wear two layers of clothing, a coat um, and then a shirt or an undershirt. It should be noted in the ancient world that to be naked in public was certainly a shame, but to see nakedness in public was the greater shame. The worst shame. And so, you know, you've got that story in, Moses, uh, in uh, Genesis about Noah. And he is, uh, gets drunk and is naked. And his sons all um, uh, are, see him. But it's really actually, it's Ham, one of his particular sons in particular, who, who really stares and sees his father naked. And it's Ham, at the end of the scene, who is the one who is cursed for having seen his father naked. It's Ham, the one who sees the nakedness who receives the greatest shame and failing. So, person comes along to take your coat. In this context, very well may have been a tax collector who was always happy to take non-liquid assets from the poor to get some kind of income. Jesus says, all right, when that happens, give them your undershirt as well. Is not a command just telling the, the poor, relinquish what you have, woe is me, just give up. It puts the one who has taken the coat in a very difficult position. Either the man who's now taken the coat must see you naked and know the greater shame. Or maybe he has to say, never mind, actually. Here's your coat. Either way, giving the undershirt is neither a fighting back with sort of equal robbery and coercive force, nor is it a cowering in flight. It's a third way. It's a creative way. It's an imaginative way. It's a courageous way. It's loving in the sense that it exposes the wrong of the aggressor, which is for their, their good, but does so in a way that the aggressor is free to see that. It's an attempt to break the cycle of evil, even as the evil doer never has to get what they doled out. Or again, give to anyone who begs from you, and if anyone takes away your goods, don't ask for it again. And I think by now we're starting to get Jesus' never simply exhorting, be a doormat kind of thinking. Oh, it's, it's sacrificial, it's hard, don't get me wrong. But, but each exhortation does invite sort of a creativity, an imagination, A love that both dignifies the one who is hurt, but ends up ultimately serving the enemy who hardly deserves it. Mark Laverton, the president of Fuller Seminary, tells a story of Doris, um, one of the members of his church from when he used to pastor, and and, and, and tells the story in light of this particular exhortation of Jesus and, and, and how a creative understanding might unfold. He says, Doris, uh, he writes, Doris was 85 years old, tall, elegant, fine-boned, with the kind of coiffed hair that said she had done it, had it done every Friday at 11. 
But one Sunday she didn't make it to church. That was unusual. Uh, Mark caught up with her later that day and she goes, well, let me tell you a story. You know that banana bread I always make every week? Well, someone came up to my car and just as I was reaching over for my banana bread, they knocked me on the head. They pushed me over the console into the passenger side seat and got into the driver's seat and started driving. So now Doris is in the car with this stranger driving her car and he turns to her and says, who are you? Doris, who are you? Jesse, where are we going, Jesse? He's a drug addict and he admits he knows this is not the kind of life that is good or reputable, but he's got to get money for the drugs. Doris tells him he needs to get out of this kind of life. He stops the car and he's, he's about to leave Doris on the side of the road and he Changes his mind. He, he actually goes around to the passenger side of the car and helps her out and walks her over to the, back to the driver's side and helps her in and gives her a kiss and then, of course, takes all the money. And, and Doris goes, I'm going to pray that you get caught. You need Jesus and you need a good drug rehab program. I'm going to pray you get that. Well, Jesse was, was eventually caught a little bit later, and, and, and Doris went to the lineup and, and, and identified him. She went to the trial. She testified and, and even waved from the witness stand and answered all the questions that were asked of her and then eventually just turns to the judge and says, quote, I, I told Jesse, judge, I told Jesse that he needs Jesus and he needs a good drug rehab program. I want you to convict him and get him a drug rehab, good drug rehab program. Doris then followed Jesse with visits and care through his two years of prison and drug rehab. A third way, a creative way, a courageous way, a sacrificial way, an imaginative way. Because with Jesus there are no rule books for loving enemies. Love them, bless them, pray for them. But, but that is a fundamentally creative, imaginative, courageous, sacrificial act. And when we think about it, would we expect anything else? Is not that how God, how God first loved us? Have not we been enemies of God, as Romans put it, uh, running in our own way, doing our own thing, our own sin? And surely there were two options before Jesus upon the cross. Either get down from that cross as God Almighty and start beating up all the evil people, all the enemies for our sins against one another and sins against God. Or die. I mean, just get steamrolled by the sin. It's fight or flight, right? Or resurrection. Neither saving his own skin nor dying at the hands of enemies is the final truth. Resurrection is the creative, utterly unexpected third way of our God. And in rising, Jesus does not pound us for our sin or just keep taking them, but he forgives them. He cancels their power. He cancels the power of death. God's great love is shown unto enemies most clearly by rising and forgiving. In fact, if, if you've ever known genuine forgiveness granted or received, is it not, in essence, the most creative, courageous, imaginative way to love an enemy? Our enemies are certainly afar. 
but oh, how often they are also often on the same playground. And if loving an enemy, if forgiving an enemy seems quite impossible, hear again this truth from Romans 8, verse 11. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. The same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead and forgave us is in us. Is through us that we might love enemies as God first loved enemies and of all things so birthed a family, a church. I want to conclude with a brief prayer. Paul often prayed that the church would know that the resurrection power of Jesus was within them. And that that, from that might flow great acts of love and forgiveness unto even enemies. And he's got a great one that I just want to read these lines as a closing to the sermon. Let us pray together. I also pray that you, church will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. And that lives in you. In Christ's name we make our prayer. Amen.